Hello and welcome to the Stinging Fly podcast. My name is Ian Malini and today I'm joined by Kaylin Hogan. Kaylin is the author of Republic of Shame, Stories from Ireland's Institutions for Fallen Women, published in 2019 by Penguin and nominated for Nonfiction Book of the Year at the Irish Book Awards. She has worked as a journalist and filed stories from all over the world for publications like National Geographic, The New York Times Magazine, Harper's, The New Yorker and The Guardian. She's also written essays and reported pieces for the Dublin Review and The Stinging Fly. Kaylin has chosen to read On Nonfiction About Housing and Homelessness by Lois Capilla. Lois is the co-founder and managing editor of the Dublin Inquirer, a reader-funded city newspaper for Dublin. Lois was shortlisted for the Orwell Prize for Journalism in 2019. This piece was published online in June 2017 as a prelude to our winter 2017 issue, which featured a special section on housing issues. Kaylin's piece, No Shelter, which you'll hear more about later in the episode, can also be found in that issue. So without further ado, here's Kaylin. On Nonfiction About Housing and Homelessness by Lois Capilla. A few months after I launched Dublin Inquirer in 2015, one of our reporters told me that he was done writing about homelessness. It wasn't that he didn't care about the families in hotels or couples in tents. It was more that it felt too voyeuristic, too much like poverty porn. He was sensitive to how careful we should be with other people's lives. As we consider how to cover the intertwined crises of the city's contracting housing options and the expanding homelessness problem, the approach and shape of the stories that we choose to tell have subtle messages. This is something we've thought and talked a lot about as a local paper trying to understand the city. Do you focus on the personal, employing intimate journalism to explore individual decisions and sufferings, or the structural, to examine the forces that direct and constrain individual choices? Will you spend your time and words describing causes and consequences, assigning blame perhaps, and spotlighting mistakes and misdeeds, or searching for solutions that have been proposed, trialed, put in place? In Washington, D.C., some people spend their days and nights on a roundabout of buses, where it is warm and dry and relatively safe, trying to find a moment's rest. In the past, they watched out for a favorite bus driver they called Mr. Wonderful, who didn't kick them off. In her article, Go to Sleep, Deneen Brown told their story. She wrote it in 2005, but it seems timeless, a portrait of those without homes trying to fulfill one of the most basic human needs the need for sleep. Every month, government officials in Dublin release the figures for homelessness. News reports highlight the increase since the previous month, quarter or year. There is power in these hard numbers that show the failures of government policies to stem the flow of people into homelessness. There is a power too in Brown's approach, which falls into what the journalist Walt Harrington calls intimate journalism. These are the stories that uncover, describe, and evoke the texture, tone, and meaning, the warp and woof, as people say, of the everyday lives of our readers. They are stories about love and loneliness, grief and pride, those emotions that bind us all, that are such a force in our lives and yet receive little attention in journalism. 
Perhaps we mistakenly think they are the stuff of novels, not nonfiction. Those emotions can even be found in articles such as I Wasn't Crazy by Petula Dvorak. The story lays out the years-long battle by 80-year-old Wanda Witter, a rough sleeper on the streets of Washington, D.C., to get the $100,000 she was owed by the United States government. It can be summed up in a couple of words, resilience and determination. The power of character-driven journalism is that it can offer fleshed-out portraits of those who share the city, that if it affirms the humanity of individuals and the complexity of personal struggles. The risk is that we give undue emphasis to pull yourself up or let yourself slip narratives and stories of reinvention, rather than to the structural challenges that prevent people from getting on their feet. How do we write stories that recognize both the structural obstacles and personal autonomy, whether it is trying to stay afloat while living in hotels or trying to get back to work? It is a constant effort to try to understand the bigger dynamics that are at play. In the book, How to Kill a City, the journalist Peter Moskowitz looks at how government policies have heightened the unequal geography of four American cities and how a history of disinvestment in cities has led officials to welcome white and moneyed people back to the centers while the poor are pushed out. In the book, The New Urban Crisis, the urbanist Richard Florida likewise hones in on the economics of housing and the soaring house prices in what he calls superstar cities around the world, including Dublin. Florida writes about the fierce competition for space that sets off a chain reaction. The more things cluster in space, the more expensive land gets. The more expensive land gets, the higher housing prices become, and the more certain things get pushed out. This is a natural process rooted in physical geographical limitations in one sense, but it is also in part the result of the efforts of urban landlords and homeowners to restrict what is being built and in doing so to keep the prices of their own real estate holdings high, writes Florida. One of the takeaways from Moskowitz's book is that the pressure of the housing market is felt most by those on lower incomes and in poor minority neighborhoods in the US, but it also ripples well beyond that. In the article Dispossessed in the Land of Dreams in the New Republic, the journalist Monica Potts tells a story of Susan Rousseau, who is evicted with her elderly husband from their home. They sleep in their van until there are complaints from residents. The couple had a respectable income, one that technically kept them above poverty, but it still wasn't enough for rent, wrote Potts. Dave Lorden, in his multimedia notes on the literature of homelessness, has said he is skeptical of the power of writing these days. His concern is that it has become a detached, marginalized, ignored, melancholy, pointlessly meandering kind of a thing to be doing. He might say the same of journalism. As that young journalist felt as we are starting out, it can seem as if it is a hopeless, sadistic, directionless safari of misery. We point to the problems, the rising numbers of homeless families, the doorways of rough sleepers told there are no free beds for them, the overcrowded homes and the divided families. While we shouldn't ignore these realities, it sometimes seems as if we fail to move on to solutions. What is being done elsewhere? Can we do the same? What are the challenges to models to solve parts of the homelessness and housing puzzle? 
That might partly be down to an if it bleeds, it leads mantra that uses fear to draw on readers, but others have different explanations. Journalists are afraid of looking gullible, said Tina Rosenberg, co-founder of the Solutions Journalism Network on the business of giving podcast. If you do a story saying there's a problem and it turns out you're wrong, that's a journalistic misdemeanor, she said. If you do a story saying something is working and it turns out you're wrong, that's a journalistic felony inside the profession. That's a thing that everybody is afraid of. Yet there are signs that this is the kind of journalism and nonfiction that people want to read. One of the studies done by the Solutions Journalism Network found that stories with solutions made readers feel better informed about the issue and more likely to get involved in trying to solve the problem that was highlighted. Once you start to look out for journalists who are fixated on finding solutions to unaffordable housing and homelessness, it opens up a world of stories and empowers readers. In The Atlantic, Alana Samuels has written about the use of community land trusts, whereby nonprofits buy up land that has to be used for affordable housing. It isn't a new idea, she notes, but it is one that has gained momentum since the 1980s. In The New Yorker, Malcolm Gladwell followed the story of Million Dollar Murray to highlight the idea that the best and cheapest way to help chronic, long-term homeless people to get back on their feet is just to take them off the street and give them an apartment with a full-time caseworker. It can mean looking at smaller measures to alleviate some of the indignities of homelessness, such as having nowhere to put personal belongings. What about lockers for the homeless? Or it can mean looking at more ambitious projects to help those on lower incomes access stable housing, as one affordable housing co-op has done in Ballymun in North Dublin. We are looking at how to write more solutions-focused journalism at Dublin Inquirer, and the best way to do that without becoming cheerleaders or making excuses for failures of policy or politicians. There will always be a place for other kinds of stories too, though, for the intimate journalism and the portraits of everyday lives, including of those who are homeless. That's not so that those who read it can feel entertained or relieved. It is because, in spite of all the junk that fills our newspapers and websites, I believe there is still a power in the idea that when we choose to write something, we are implicitly saying that this matters, that you matter. Thank you, Kaelin. Thank you for reading that. Um, as ever, the first question uh, is pretty much always, why did you pick this piece to read? This was a piece that uh, preceded the issue that came out about homelessness and housing by The Stinging Fly. I think it was in winter 2017. And it was an issue that I contributed to, uh, writing about a woman who was in direct provision, um, but also ended up in emergency accommodation after that, and was worried about eviction and, and homelessness. And I think it was interesting just to sort of raise the question of how we write about housing and homelessness, uh, both in journalism and in nonfiction, to think really about the ways that we 
approach stories, uh, the way that we tell other people's stories, the ethics involved, but also sort of the, you know, what we seek to achieve through doing that. Um, I'm always a bit uncomfortable with that term, giving a voice to people. You know, I think you provide space to tell people's stories or let their voices be heard. Um, but it raised a lot of questions for me, I think, about my writing and reporting and sort of, you know, the, that focus on solutions uh, versus challenges, the need to not, you know, be seeking sympathy, I think, always when you're sharing stories of people who are facing challenges, but also to respect them as experts of their own experience. And I think there is always a, a worry about that almost exploitative nature of, you know, taking someone's, you know, often one of the most difficult experiences of their lives and, you know, the worry that it might seem as entertainment or the only thing that would come out of that is someone feeling sympathy. You know, ideally you want it to be something that gives a reader a better understanding of that person's situation um, and of the wider systems and policies that have, you know, impacted that person. And sometimes there can be a debate, I think, about either or, like, do you have a, a person-led story um, or do you have a policy-led story? And, you know, policy-led stories, you think that you would always go to experts, but I think people are expert of their own experience. And so it's not really about, you know, just evoking sympathy or empathy even. It's about sort of recognizing the expertise that have people have about these systems if they've gone through them. So, you know, so often policies are developed without the input of the people that they impact. And I think the role of nonfiction and of journalism is to allow people who are impacted by these policies or impacted by homelessness to have their voices heard and to sort of have their experience and their expertise, hopefully, um, you know, influence the public understanding of it. Uh, but I think it's a really interesting debate. And I think that issue of the fly was was really important. And actually going back through the archives, um, I noticed that the fly has covered homelessness and housing through essays and nonfiction quite a lot, actually. One of the earliest pieces of nonfiction was almost an oral history of people in Ballymun who'd been sort of moved into the flats there that, you know, were named after leaders of the rising. And, you know, in that issue that I mentioned, um, the issue on housing and homelessness, there were so many brilliant essays and, and pieces of fiction as well, exploring this issue. And I think, Sometimes there's a feeling that literary journals or magazines should sort of not be political. And it was quite a bold move by The Fly. And I, I think it was even in the editorial of that issue, they addressed that, you know, that worry that readers would feel this was too political or it wasn't really what they expected from a literary journal. But I think, you know, all writing is political in some way. Um, and I just thought it was a really brave thing and a really important issue. Um that was done by the fly. And this kind of was a piece that came out uh, when they were trying to, when they were saying that they were open for submissions, basically. Uh, and kind of, I guess, this was the premise of, of that issue of trying to think about the ways we write about this issue, which affects all parts of our lives, really. Like housing, you know, is just at the center of all our problems, you know, in Dublin. And um, so I, you know, I just think it was a really important thing to go back to and to recognize, I guess, the way The Fly has provided a space um, for nonfiction and fiction exploring this issue. Yeah. And there's um, 
several examples of poetry um, as well, going back through the archives, if one was to look uh, exactly about this topic as well and the frustration that people have uh, with trying to find a home that mm. is uh, suitable to them. Um, I think this, what Lois is getting at, this kind of personal structural uh, division, I suppose, that you're talking about as well. It, it does seem to, it, on one hand, it's a question of style, I guess, as a writer, mm. that maybe pe some people might be more comfortable with one than the other, uh, depending on where they're coming from. But do you think it's a useful lens for questioning what a piece of writing is doing when it's uh, writing about these kinds of subjects that have this uh, kind of multi-layered issue at, the, at, at their core? I think, I mean, one of one of the concerns if you're writing a piece that is solely based on, you know, a personal experience is that it won't give insight into the larger systems at play, you know, and the policies. And it, like I was saying, it can, the purpose of that can seem to only be to evoke empathy. And, you know, Lois writes in that piece about that intimate journalism being a recognition of someone mattering. And I think that's really important, like that someone's voice matters, that their experience matters. But often there can be a sense that writing about people going through challenges and struggles can be an attempt to humanize them, you know, and we shouldn't need to uh, write about people in a way they should be respected as human beings. There shouldn't be a reason that, you know, someone who is homeless isn't viewed as a human being. Un unfortunately, that can often be the case. But I think avoiding that style of writing that only seeks to humanize because, you know, that's just, I think... A difficult space to be inhabiting you know you shouldn't be begging a reader to recognize someone's humanity but you know you should be respecting the fact that their voices and experiences matter and so I think you know realizing the difference in that is really important and and for writers as well I mean this piece starts with I can I think the disillusionment of a journalist and even in the most recent issue of the fly Tim McGowan did a great piece on reporting on the experience of people you know trying to seek uh, asylum or protection in the U.S. um and sort of this feeling that stories, what, what's the point? You know, what's the point of writing these stories? And the people you talk to, you know, if you, I've written about homelessness and about direct provision particularly and sort of the in, interlinking exp experiences in both those systems. And, you know, people give of their time and will sit down with you and spend a lot of time talking to you. They'll revisit some of the most difficult moments in their life. They'll revisit a lot of trauma and pain. Um, and you love to think that those stories will make some difference to how people um, understand those systems and, you know, to give more, uh, to raise more awareness of how systems and policies are affecting people um, and to draw out, I think, the complexities as well beyond the stereotypes. Uh, but, you know, you can never promise that someone telling their story is going to change anything. Um, so, you know, it can feel sometimes that you're sort of screaming into a void or that you're taking up people's time. And maybe, you know, I could be spending my time doing something that might help people in a more practical way. Um, but, you know, I think when you can combine the two, you know, I think I, I'm someone who 
has always been, I think, intensely interested in how policies impact people um, and telling the stories of people who have been impacted and to try and connect, help readers connect with those experiences and finding different ways to do that. And so I think when you can combine both, um, when someone's personal experience helps bring deeper insight into how policies work and how systems work, I think that's that's what's really powerful. Um, and I think, you know, inevitably we're all human. We all connect better with an issue when we can uh, understand the experience of someone affected by it. Um, so I think, yeah, it's, I, I think it's powerful when you can combine two, but both work, you know, I, I, your own podcast on, on housing, which is in the, in the Dublin Acquire, looked at like the context and the s- sort of systematic policies that have affected housing in Ireland over, you know, for so many years. Um, and I think it's important to show that, to show the context. So, you know, not just to have an article that's evoking sympathy, but to show the sort of underlying forces at play as well. But again, often the people affected by those forces are the, the best experts to talk to. They can they can bring insight to those issues that you might never have found by talking to, you know, someone who's simply researching the issue. Um, and so I think maybe when Lois is talking about solutions-based journalism, maybe change the way that we interview or seek information from people affected rather than just, you know, wanting to hear about their trauma or about... Um, you know, the the painful experiences that they've had to try and evoke again that empathy, we might want to be asking them, what would you change? And how would you, what solutions do you think, you know, we need to be pursuing? So maybe changing the way we we interact and the, the sort of, um, yeah, the motivations in our interviews. So I think it's a really important discussion. Yeah, I mean, there's so much there. Um, like you mentioned the podcasting and like I spent a couple of months talking to people about that, but I did focus mo- mainly, uh, not exclusively, but mainly on, on um, experts, quote unquote, you know, mm. academics and politicians and uh, people involved in research in different ways and, and pra- people involved practically in charity work and all that kind of stuff as well. And people who, activists and, and all those kinds of things um, and tried to bring it all together. But I did feel, I was like, when I was about halfway through it, I was thinking, Am I just like missing the whole thing? Am I missing, like, should I not just be talking to the people who are actually mm-hmm. affected, most affected by this? Like, but I kind of rationalized it away by saying everyone's affected by it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the point of the podcast to go structurally was to to say, this affects everybody. It's It's not an issue that, okay, there are people who are very visibly and just over the top affected by it. But you know, everyone is affected by it. it. It goes up through the classes and you have to be very, very wealthy before you're not affected by it really. So um, like that housing to me seems like such a, just an issue that just opens up onto like almost every other issue that we face like in society. And it's just such a rich is probably the wrong word because you don't want to like <laughs> say that's, that's what it is, but it's just, it's just so open-ended. It touches on every, like every issue that we're facing as a society as a whole and like has like you mentioned yourself like you've the way that it it opens on to questions of immigration and and how people seek asylum here or indeed anywhere else in the world um and the issues that people face transitioning from one type of being housed 
to having to find a home and and mm-hmm. like is that was that a what kind of experience was that for you like what did you learn in in reporting that essay and that piece of work yeah and I think it it's really it was important to me I mean that I wrote about primarily a woman called Joy who um came from Nigeria and is a mother of three and she was in Watergate House which was a direct provision center in the city center of Dublin and it, they were closing it down so she was getting sort of eviction notices coming through um and her experience just really showed the lack of options in the midst of this housing crisis you know she was being basically threatened with eviction from a direct provision center but you know you and like you say it does affect everyone I think the housing crisis particularly has woken a lot of people up who maybe wouldn't you know wouldn't have been interested in these issues but recognize that it affects their kids no matter how you know sort of affluent they they are it's still the you know the rental crisis the housing crisis in Dublin does affect everyone um and anyone who's tried to find a new place to rent knows how difficult it is so you can only imagine what it's like when you haven't been allowed to work you don't you haven't had the right to work in this country you don't you know have references from employers and then you're trying to compete with other people to rent a house and it drew on all these different uh, policies that were affecting people um including HAP you know the, the way that the housing assistance um could be you know landlords could discriminate against you for that or were probably weren't meant to but you know she experienced that where she would just go to endless viewings and there was just not a chance that she was um going to have her going to have her application accepted so it kind of for me drew together just how these interlinked policies and systems were affecting one family um from you know she had lived in direct provision for years and her children were affected by the law that was brought in in 2014 um, or 2004 sorry uh, about you know citizenship and so her kids you know didn't actually have our citizenship and had to claim asylum which is just a really surreal challenge as well that she was sort of have to claim asylum for kids who were born here um you know and what do you you know obviously they were there to be with her um but all these strange challenges that these policies created um but she was you know being threatened with homelessness and and did actually I, I don't think at the stage of the story she was an emergency accommodation but she did so subsequently end up in a family hub um and I think so often uh, people within those systems are sort of pitted against each other. You know, you see this in like far right rhetoric now that uses the housing crisis, almost weaponizes it, you know, against people who are vulnerable. So um, migrants and immigrants um, claiming that that's the sort of fault of immigration. It's why we have a housing crisis. And that narrative can be really convincing because, you know, on, on the surface, you, you think more people coming into the country, gonna you know reduce the availability of housing but I wrote this piece for Vice and um about the housing crisis in Dublin but also in Berlin Uh, and I remember speaking with someone who was a squatter and it was really interesting to speak to her because she had a totally different vision of Dublin um as someone who was used to going around and finding empty houses to, to squat you know 
I think the housing crisis gives us this impression that there's no space, that there's no houses available. And it's, it's intended to do that. You know, it's, it's, and you don't realize how manufactured it is until speaking with this, this young woman um, who saw it as just, you know, this city full of options, this city full of empty houses. Uh, and I think when we, a lot of, I think journalism, when it's most effective is, changing the way you know people see something and her interviewing her changed the way I saw the city physically you know I actually started to notice empty houses around the city and you know like the take back the city protests that was something that was so effective through that because it just made visible how many vacant houses there were and there's thousands you know so that argument that there's no space um, and it's the fault of people coming in is you know just it kind of undermines that whole argument uh, and makes us look at the problem differently uh, so you know I think showing how her family was affected by you know or was going to be affected within both these systems I think was a ground for solidarity you know I think that um, rather than homeless people being pitted against people seeking international protection the reality is they're actually affected by the same policies and the same systems that sort of encourages the institutionalization or warehousing of vulnerable people and you know when I wrote my book um, I was looking a lot into these intertwined institutions and you see a similarity between you know the way people were moved between industrial schools and some other baby homes and laundries uh, we now see people moved from direct provision into family hubs, into emergency accommodation and shelters. And again, it's because of that same policy of not providing direct support, um, giving money to private organizations or businesses, uh, you know, to essentially institutionalize people. Um, so her story for me just, it was this kind of, this meeting point for all these issues and a way to explore those policies and she spoke to how they affected her personally um and you know I guess as well what she she sort of wanted to change you know um but also things that I never would have known had I not speak to, spoken to her or other people in direct provision um you know the way when I first wrote about that system I remember someone telling me oh you know I, I first lived in in the camp and I remember thinking oh do you mean you know when you were traveling from Syria with these refugee camps you were you ended up in on the way and he meant Balsiskin and Finglas you know that was the way that uh, people in DP were were speaking about these centers as if they were camps um, and and again that changed my understanding of it and also you know the the way that getting your papers um the importance of that you know that it was a sense of, I think she describes it as, you know, you're not a free person until you get your papers. And so these are, these are understandings and ways of, you know, seeing these issues that I never would have um, understood or been able to articulate without speaking to people who directly experienced this system. And um, so it was, yeah, really important to center her story, I think, uh, while also exploring those policies. Yeah, definitely. And it, it like, listening to you describe that experience, I think like the question of like reframing is so important and the way that um, a phrase or a word can do that for you. Like that's, I mean, that's the great power of it. And when you, when you get one of those words 
that suddenly makes sense of something else. I mean, that that can happen in any sort of uh, any any area of life. Really, you could be you know theoretical philosophy or something, and you you get a word and it just makes sense of something that you see. And and like you say, to when you hear a word like camp, and it just changes the way that you look at these buildings and these institutions, and and it clarifies something in some way uh, that you can't come up with yourself. You know, you have to go and find those words that the people actually use mm-hmm. uh, to capture these things. Um, the story uh, that you're talking about, like, I think the way that Lois starts this essay with um, the disillusioned journalists and the sort of uh, the worry about poverty porn and the kind of like, is this useful at all? And mm-hmm. isn't this just you know, uh, yeah, just glossy sort of meaninglessness, uh, what do you call it, mindless safari or whatever Lois mm-hmm. calls it. Um, have you ever had that reaction to a story? Have you ever felt like this is just pointless? Like what, or Did you see the clip from the BBC recently where this journalist is in a boat on the channel? I think it's on the channel. And it was just recently... Um, this guy and he's in this boat and there's um, like a small dinghy or whatever it is uh, packed with people who are coming across trying to seek asylum in the UK. And it's just this guy sort of like with a with a mic on a boat and they're in the background and he he's like interviewing them from the boat, but just like, you know, where are you coming from? And, and, and narrating it in real time of like, and they're bailing out the boat, but they seem to be okay. You know, this just complete voyeurism, you know, and, and the complete, um, as if he was watching a movie, you know, like he didn't, the fact that he could just sort of cruise along beside this boat that may or may not have been sinking and sort of lean his mic over to ask these people who were, you know, in a really dangerous and quite desperate situation uh, was just, it's just really shocking to watch. And funnily enough, actually, I I was in Calais when they were uh, evicting or um, breaking down the, um, so the camps there. Uh, And it was, you know, just a really dramatic Experience. I mean, they, it, it, the whole place ended up going on fire and there was all these, you know, police who were just forcing people out and no one really knew where they were being sent. Um, and I remember at one point, but there was there were still people coming in. There were still people arriving in Calais. Um, and at one point, I remember being there and like literally the, the camp is sort of in flames in the back and there's police everywhere. And this family with young kids is coming in, sort of dragging whatever belongings they had. Um, and there's a camera crew sort of following them because it's like, oh, this is interesting. And new arrivals coming in at a point where, you know, the camp is being evicted. And definitely, I, you know, I would have wanted to speak to them. I was interested in hearing their experience. But because, I don't know, because it was on camera, they followed them, but obviously didn't weren't happy with the shot they got. So they stopped this family and said, can you go back? Can you walk back and then walk towards us again so we can get our shot better? 
And that just for me was the point where I just lost like a lot of respect and, and a lot of hope, I think, in, you know, in journalism at some point. And, you know, that's for me, that's a rarity. Like, you know, I have worked with so many and at that point was was there with other journalists who were covering it in such a responsible and ethical way. And um, that is sometimes a rarity but it does happen and that that is I think just to treat people as if they're material you know and that they're solely there for the purpose of you know your story is just to forget the humanity of these people and um to other them completely uh and I think you know I I I remember when I started off reporting there was I was in Spain I was writing a piece about um, the Indignados movement and the evictions, actually. Uh, but there was, I was interviewing someone and I, I was young and I think I was really nervous. And I was with a friend who was helping me translate. And I kind of rushed to ask my question. And I remember my friends sort of taking me by the arm and just saying, you haven't? Like, I, I think I, I, no, I definitely said, you know, my name is Kaylin and I'm a journalist. But it then kind of jumped right into a question And I remember my friend saying, you know, you haven't really, you know, sort of asked her any kind of small talk. Like there's been no small talk, you know, she, she doesn't, don't, don't rush into the question so quickly. Um, and that was nerves on my point, but it's always stayed with me. And it's so important to remember that, like, you should have a normal conversation with someone and not just leap into a question because, you know, you're two people speaking and you would never do that with anyone else. You wouldn't just launch into interviewing someone. So I think I learned a lot from that moment. Um, and that's really important because I think we can, especially when you're interviewing a lot of people and in a moment of, you know, if you're in a refugee camp or covering an event, you know, where it's stuff is happening very quickly, it's easy to become desensitized. You do because you're hearing, you know, a lot of really difficult experiences. Um, you know, when I reported on Syria, I did a lot of, along the borders and speaking to a lot of refugees. Um, and, you know, many people had the same experiences and they're all really horrific. And you have to remind yourself that for each individual, you know, this is their individual life and all their, you know, complexity and all their different experiences. And it, even though they all share this sort of um, experience of the conflict and having to having to sort of escape um, the war, they all have their own individual stories and experiences and respecting that. Um, but yeah, there's think there's ways to do it and there's ways not to do it and <laughs> unfortunately there's there's a lot of examples where journalists have just not respected the people that they're reporting on mm-hmm. yeah it's like you mentioned um uh, tim mcgowan's piece in the in the latest issue of the, of the fly and i i love that piece um it took a long time to come together but i think it was worth taking the time because it was like that story, I mean, the story of crossing from Mexico to the US, which is the core of, in a way, of, of, of that piece, or at least where it started. And then you have his friend who's kind of traveling all over and, and is almost like a, a kind of like lighthearted kind of soul in some way. You get the sense that he has a real sense of humor and he kind of takes what comes in this way. And, and 
you know, his pa- he gets his papers, but he's already kind of gone and he's kind of left the UK. And it's, it's, it's just this wonderful, I guess, encapsulation of a globalized system of people kind of in between. And that's what we, that's what we have now in this, in this moment. We just have so many people who are in between places and don't have a place to, or an official place to call home or anything like that. Um, but what I thought was interesting about Tim's approach there was that he, it's almost fiction-like in the level of uh, interiority the people that he writes about seems to he seems to generate in those people and and to get from them and you, you get you don't always have the sense that he's writing about it a that it, you're you're reading someone writing about someone else you often just feel like you're just reading about that person you don't have that in between person he has a characterization ability which is uh, really interesting and I, and I wonder. I mean, you've written essays and journalism and have you, the form of the thing that you're doing changes the way that you write about people and the way that you're able to uh, bring people to life in a piece of work? I mean, have you found different affordances between the different forms that have um, allowed you to do different things? I think one of the first essays that I wrote um, for the Dublin Review uh, was about Syria. And it was the first time that I'd put myself in a story um, or sort of shared, I guess, my own internal dialogue, let's say, uh, within a piece. And, you know, in journalism, magazine writing, there's often a little more scope to do that. Um, And you can write through sort of the lens of your own experience. But in straightforward news, you know, that's just not something you're going to do. And I think that is one difference with the form is that within the essay or a piece of reportage, like you have the opportunity to bring some of your own insight into the piece um, or your own voice. Uh, And there's always a debate I think over and and you never want to a journalist particularly never wants the story to be about them you know it's sort of a cardinal rule um often sometimes broken in 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 strange ways but you know you yeah it it shouldn't be about you um and you shouldn't be sort of the center of the piece but I think with with Tim's piece particularly what makes that piece so powerful is that he speaks about his own feelings of sort of inadequacy um, and his own experience uh, of reporting. Uh, and and there's a transparency in that, I think, that you can achieve um, on a different level that I think helps that connection with the reader, um, but also helps connect with you know, the people you're writing about in a different way too, because it's more of an exchange, which is the natural way that we interact with people, right? Rather than someone writing about someone as if they're a sort of test subject. Um, you allow for that interaction between you and the person you're writing about. And I think it's just more maybe authentic in a certain way. Um, and in the way that Tim does it and the way that I, I've tried to explore within an essay as well is that it's not necessarily about making the story about you. It's about being transparent sometimes about your own misconceptions or your initial sort of reactions to things and how you've struggled to understand certain, you know, experiences and um, you know, particularly with, you know, pieces I've written on on people in 
DP and direct provision, um, one of the first people I interviewed, you know, the first interview we had, he didn't want me to record. He didn't want me to even take notes. He was that fearful that, you know, saying anything would, you know, um, would have implications, would have backlash that he would, you know, and it just showed that sense of fear that was within that system. Um, and eventually, you know, we spoke and I think that's an important thing that I, you know, I think is important to remember with nonfiction and journalism is that you can sit down and have a chat with someone first and then go back, you know, meet them again and do a, a, another interview. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. Um, it can often be some of the best interviews I've done have been when, you know, you've just had a chance to chat first without, you know, your without recording and without it being about the interview um, and then go back when people have, you know, have a sense of um, security and, and know who you are as a person and you're able to just have a chat. So we were able to go back and we did, I did, you know, multiple interviews with him and, and wrote about his experience extensively. But I think being able to show that first interaction um, was really important because it just, it, it showed more about his own fears and, um, the whole process. And I think sometimes that transparency really, again, can just give you a deeper insight into the experience. Um, and yeah, nonfiction just gives you the scope for that. But also I think sometimes to show more, uh, more nuance and, you know, more of the kind of, the experiences or, or sort of the, the things that happen that aren't necessarily integral to the story. If you're writing a newspaper piece about, you know, um, someone who's seeking asylum in the UK, you're not going to go into like necessarily watching the football game with them. Right. And yet that is part of, you know, the everyday life, the everyday interactions, uh, what Lois talks about in this piece, you know, the, the normal experiences of loneliness and love and grief, uh, that often get lost and, can again other people or reduce people to only their experience as an asylum seeker or only their experience as someone who is homeless when you know our people's lives encompass so much more than that and are so more complex um, and those you know just sitting around and watching the football game we we get a sort of a 3d view of this person's life right it's it's more complex it's more in depth and i think obviously a longer form piece or an essay gives you the scope for that um when you were sort of thinking about what to read for for this uh podcast you were uh thinking about philip kelly's piece shadow of the word and um one of the things that he talks about in that is i think he opens with it is the sense that he feels um, fiction is inadequate in some way. You mentioned inadequacy earlier on as well. Um, and he, like the, the just, you know, the mere facts of the things that he's thinking about are overwhelming enough. He can't find that distance from them. Um, have you ever had that feeling? Like I, I, what, what sort of relationship do you think fiction has with this? Because I think so often certainly an essay or certain types of reportage will have, will take the techniques of fiction, but still obviously rely totally on the facts. And I guess I wondered, is there, can you even think of examples or have there been examples in your own life where fiction 
has risen to that challenge or do you feel like there, there there's some sort of separation there? Yeah, I mean, that piece is, is I think, really powerful and, and necessary in, that, in this moment to read. Um, and it's really interesting to see uh, the struggle with, you know, that the, not necessarily that... Um, that the real world is overwhelming or, you know, too overwhelming to capture in fiction because I think fiction plays a really important role in how we understand the real world um, and can be, you know, sometimes more powerful than nonfiction. But I think O'Callaghan writes that, you know, the the real world is enough, that there's just, there's things that you couldn't make up or I think he writes, you know, would be too on the nose, like that an editor would just reject that. And he's writing about, you know, this SS officer who these letters that are on the one hand to his mistress and then have random notes or diary notes about, um, you know, killing hundreds of, of innocent people um, in sort of the same breath. And I think there's some line where he says, he would murder his mistress with kisses you know and and it's just like an editor would reject reject that completely it's just too on the nose uh and I've definitely had experiences reporting where it's just I have to sit back and be like I couldn't have made that up you know I just you couldn't write that and if you wrote that in fiction <laughs> someone would be like oh yeah come on <laughs> like that's never gonna happen uh you know there's several instances I, I again was reporting on Syria from the border in Turkey and I was in there was this sort of airplane hangar or, or strange hangar right on the border where the customs had been uh, and there were people living inside it in tents um, and I was a Syrian family and you know I, I again that idea of being desensitized I'd heard so many stories that day and you know, many of them were the same experiences. And I spoke to this family, but I wasn't really sure if it was anything I, I could use. And that's, again, that's su such a strange thing, you know yourself of like, can I use this? It's, it's, it's really kind of awkward and problematic in the way we even talk about um, reporting and, and using people's material and experiences. But I remember coming out of the tent and there was a cage um, with birds in it and talking about using fiction devices, you know, I think you develop an eye as a writer. It's really important as a nonfiction writer because we can only use the material that we that we see and that, that is real, <laughs> you know, at least <laughs> that that is what you should be doing. Um, but, you know, so you're constantly, I think, looking for things that can, uh, you know, deepen the descriptions and, and like help you create scenes and um, make uh, the place or people you're writing about tangible. Um, and so you sort of, I, I, one of the things I've tried to develop is finding those strange things that kind of stick out to you and resonate with you, uh, which will resonate with the reader. Um, so I came out of this tent and there was a cage with birds and I just thought, well, that's an interesting image, you know. Uh, and I asked um, the man about it and I said, you know, did you did you buy these birds or where did they come from? And he told me, no, I, I brought them from home. I brought them from Aleppo. And so he had walked, you know, or, you know, traveled from Aleppo at a time when the war was really intense um, and the fighting was really intense. And he'd brought these little yellow canaries or whatever they were uh, in a cage from, you know, this city that was being heavily bombed um, all the way across the border. And he said, because they reminded him of home. And it was in an Irish Times piece. It was a, a news report, our feature. Um, and 
my editor at the time, I was lucky, just really uh, invested a lot in, you know, he, he was always saying that, you know, it's your job to make people feel like they're there, you know, that we can get the, the facts and the figures off the wires, but your job is to actually show what these people are feeling and seeing and, and their experiences. And that was just something that, you know, really, I think, said a lot for me, you know, that this person had taken these birds all the way from their home city. And it just showed, you know, how things, small things can have such meaning for people. And the, the, the you know, strange things were willing to, you know, this is a big bird cage. You can imagine it wasn't easy <laughs> to, to travel with this thing. Uh, and just the delicate nature of the birds and all of it, 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 it was like something, it felt like something kind of out of, out of a novel. I felt like if I'd written it in fiction, it would have been a bit, you know, twee or something. Um, but because it was, it was real, uh, it was really powerful for me. I think that scene just, uh, it still resonates with me. Um, so yeah, I, th I think that's what, because often I'll think, you know, well, should I try fiction or will I write a, a short story? And I think I've stayed with nonfiction um, just because that feeling of finding something, you know, in your reporting or having someone's experience and, and the way that they understand something reframe your whole understanding of the world is is such a it, you know it's it's just really meaningful and it's a bit of a thrill as well it's it's you know it can just completely reshape your understanding of an issue or of the world and so I think similar to that essay you know it's like the world is enough there's just there's so much out there to write about and it is more of a challenge to write about it I think creatively and um, sometimes because again you only have the material that's that you can gather to work with um but when it comes together and it works you know it's just I think there is a power in it being real you know um and tr finding ways to explore that creatively and um write a story that has the same sense of you know immersive um writing and the, the same sort of depth of narrative and, and scenery and everything else that you get in fiction. Uh, I think that's just, that's up to us as writers. That's a challenge as nonfiction writers to just do the work. And it, it takes work. I mean, you know yourself, it's, it means serious note-taking and documenting as much as you can. Um, and, and then just thinking of the ways to depict uh, you know, scenes and experiences in a way that connects with people. But that's the challenge. Indeed. That's what we're all at. Yeah. I think, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that's, a, that's a perfect place to leave it. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It was great. Thank you. Great. <laughs> That's it for this month. Thanks to Kaylin for the reading and the really engaging discussion. Thanks to you for listening and a big thanks to the Arts Council whose support makes this podcast possible. Before I go, I'd like to plug Portals, a special podcast series from the International Literature Festival Dublin, hosted by Caelan, that features conversations with six writers based across the globe, all of whom were scheduled to read at this year's festival but couldn't because of the pandemic restrictions. So check that out. And if you like this podcast, do tell your friends about it or leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again. Keep safe. Talk to you soon.